So, um, if you are one of the younger ones with us today in elementary school, um, you can join Miss Rita. She is going to be leading you guys in Children's Church today, and you can meet her at the back door. So, I should be happy to have you today. All right. So, uh, the rest of us, we are we are in the book of First Thessalonians today. We're in First Thessalonians chapter two, and this is a continuation of Joe's sermon from last week. He titled it last week, "Making Make Disciples Like Jesus," Part One. So this is uh, Part Two, and I know he'd want to preach it to you, but obviously he needs to be with his family this week. So uh, I am stepping in. Um, but as I was preparing through this, as I was reading through this. This part of Thessalonians, you really get an insight into Paul and the way that he makes disciples. That's why it's labeled making disciples like Jesus, right? Because Paul imitating Jesus is making disciples. And we get to see a glimpse into that, his heart behind it and the way that he does it. And so as I was preparing this, I was actually thinking, so as... Um, Earlier this year, just a couple weeks ago, we were on our way to a junior high snow camp where we got to spend with a couple other E-free churches. And as we're riding down, I was riding down with the girls and therefore with uh, Brittany DuPont, who, who leads the junior high girls. And she's always really good with questions. And I remember one of the questions she asked me was, okay, what is the greatest challenge you see the American church facing? And what, what's the solution to that? And I, I had a really quick kind of like cheaty answer. I was like, oh, lack of discipleship. Because it's kind of cheating because that covers everything, right? Lack of discipleship. That covers all the other problems that we have. And so it was kind of cheaty. But at the same time, the more I think about it, that's actually the right answer. If there's a, if there's a future for the American church, it's because we make disciples. If the American church fades and diminishes and keeps doing that, then it's because we have failed in making disciples. It's pretty simple, right? And, and just to catch you up where we're at in the state, I love looking at demographic studies. I'm not going to go into the details because it's not all that useful. I can give you links if you are interested in well. But here's a short summary. If you look at a lot of studies and the state of Christianity in America today, what you see is a incredible decline. The youngest generations, there are by far the fewest who identify as Christians that America has ever seen. And that's just those who identify as Christians, right? Uh, not only that, if you dig deeper and you look at what these those few who identify as Christians actually believe, you get stuff like, well, Jesus isn't really God. He's not the only way to salvation. The Bible isn't God's word and all these other things. And you're like, what do you mean by Christian then? If, if those are your beliefs. That doesn't make any sense. And so the number gets even smaller and smaller. And this drop, by the way, isn't a slow drop over time, which we have seen. It's more of a steep and incredible increase over just the last 10 years. You wonder, how did this happen? Right? But here's the thing. How this happened and how, if it changes, how it will change, goes back to discipleship. In other words, how we pass on the faith from one to another. Because if we look at the whole, the whole history of Jesus' church from his founding to today, the Christian faith has, been, uh, has spread from one person to another person to another person as they share their faith 
with each other. It's not these big, grand revivals. There are revivals that God happens, and they're amazing when they happen, but they're always supported by simple, ordinary people being faithful to make disciples over time, and they're supported in the long run after the big revivals by the same thing. How does Jesus' church grow and spread and thrive? by making disciples. And so you look at the rest of the world where Christianity is growing and expanding and thriving. Why? Because they are making disciples. So we need to look at this verse and, and learn from Paul as he imitates Jesus. How do we make disciples? Now, the, whole, the idea of, of changing the American church might seem like too big a vision for you. So instead, why don't we just focus on spreading the faith to our children, to people in Chillicothe, to your neighbors and your friends and your family. That is something that we can step into, right? Ultimately, God has to change people's hearts. We can't do that, but we can be faithful, and God can use the little crumbs that we offer to make big impact in people's lives. So we're going to look at this verse today, and we're going to see how to do that. Because sometimes I found there's a sort of confusion on discipleship within the church. We have this idea of discipleship where it's like sitting down one-on-one -on -one with people over coffee, going over the Bible, teaching them the word and all that it means and its nuances, which, by the way, is a great way to make disciples, uh, but it's just one way. And so we have this idea that, okay, who makes disciples? It's got to be the leaders and teachers in the church, right? Uh, uh, and so here's a simple quiz. How do you know who makes disciples in the church? So I have, I have a quiz for you. Are you, and this is, it's going to start off really simple, it's for a reason, are you a Christian? In other words, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you um, turned to him for forgiveness for your sin? Right? Now we start there because if not, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I hope as, our hope for you is that as you hear us speak about Jesus, our God and our Savior, you'll be captivated by this God and want to worship him also. But guess what? You don't, you don't have to make disciples. You're not a Christian, okay? So that's the first question. Are you a Christian? Okay. That's the only question. If you answer yes to that, then do you make disciples? Yes. That's the only question, the only qualification for making disciples. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this text today. In 1 Thessalonians, we're going to look at chapter 2 verses 9 through 12, and I'm going to help you because that may seem like an intimidating task. How do I make disciples? If you're sitting here and you're like, that seems incredibly intimidating. I don't even know where to begin. We're going to look at that today, okay? So I invite you to stand with me as we read from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, I pray that as we read your word today and as we look at its meaning and study it, that you would soak your word into our minds and into our hearts and that the spirit would use it to transform us. 
Use it to transform us so that we understand our call to make disciples and that we are better equipped to go and to do that work. And I pray that you encourage us in that, you help us in that, and you even confront us where we are being disobedient in that. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So what do we learn about making disciples? You might have heard what I said and said, okay, if you are a Christian, you are called to make disciples. You might be wondering, well, how? How do we do that, right? I'm not, you don't consider yourself a teacher or a leader or anything else. How do we make disciples? So let's look at this, starting with verse 9. Here's what we can learn from Paul as he is imitating Jesus. It says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So what's going on? If you look at Acts, if you read through First and Second Thessalonians, what you see is that as Paul goes to this city, he is bringing the gospel for the first time. So he enters into the city, he goes to the synagogue, preaches at first to the Jews who have an understanding, and then to the Gentiles, brand new Christians. And so as he does that, he does not ask them for money so that he can live off of it. How is he to eat and sleep? Where is he to live? How does he pay for all that? He earns all of that with his trade. And so we know from reading through the book of Acts, his trade um, is to be a tent maker. So Paul goes to the city and he makes tents and he sells them at the same time that he is going every day to the synagogue, as he's going and preaching the gospel, as he's discipling the individuals who are coming new to the faith, giving them an intense teaching so that when he leaves, not too long after this, that that church will be mature and ready to run itself. That's a lot of work by itself. On top of that, he's also making and selling tents. So it says he is laboring night and day. Why is he doing that? Because if you read through 2 Thessalonians, if you read through some of the other letters, what Paul says is that actually sometimes when he goes to other cities, that church supports him. And when the other apostles like Peter go, he even brings his wife, he is always supported. Well, well, why? Well, because that allows them to focus fully on the teaching and preaching of the gospel and equipping the church. It, It allows them, it gives them the freedom to focus more on that. And so that's why even in our church, the, um, me and Joe are incredible beneficiaries because you guys um, pay us to focus on this. We are free to focus more on the word and teaching you. We are freed up. We aren't distracted by other qualifications. Now, we also have pastors in this church like Paul, by the way. Um, your other elders who do work full-time jobs to support themselves, but also labor like Paul, to teach and preach and equip you, right? But but by all means, Paul even says in 2 Thessalonians, it is his right to be supported because he is working hard. He deserves his wages. It's his right is the way he puts it. So why is he not taking it here? If If it's so much work, why is he not taking money from the Thessalonians? And the first reason we see is so that he is not a burden to them. So he is not a burden. He is not a stumbling to them. The other accusation often accused that he wanted to avoid is that he's going in and he's just, he's not sincere. He just wants your money, right? So take that off the table to not burden them. He is working hard. And in 2 Thessalonians, we see another reason because one of the problems he addresses is there were some in the church 
because they think that Jesus is returning in their lifetime really, really soon, right? They're like, well, I don't have to work anymore. The church is incredibly generous, and they take care of the poor and the widows. They won't let me starve, so I'm good. I don't have to do anything. And Paul's like, no. <laughs> if you don't work, you don't eat, right? And in order to give them example, he goes, like, look at me. I not only spent time teaching and preaching and preparing the word for you, but I, with my own hands, earned a living. Imitate me, right? So what's going on? Well, what Paul is doing is he is giving up a right and a freedom out of love for this church. Elsewhere in the Bible, the, in if you are a Christian, you are free in Christ, and you have many freedoms in Christ to enjoy, and you should enjoy them. However, if ever your freedom interferes from loving your brothers and sisters in Christ or from sharing the gospel with those outside of Christ, you are called upon to voluntarily lay down your freedom out of love for others. Right? Now, we might not be like Paul. We, might, we probably aren't going to a city that's never heard the gospels and have to earn a living. But what does that look like for us? Well, let's give kind of a, a crazy example at first. So how many of you like your barbecue here? How many of you like your steaks? How many of you like your chicken or meat or protein? Now imagine you have a neighbor, very real possibility, who is Hindu, who is morally opposed to eating meat, right? But you want to befriend them. You want to share the gospel with them. A very real reality here, by the way, um, we have many Hindu neighbors in the Chillicothe Peoria area. Would you invite them over and say, I'm free in Christ to eat all the barbecue that I want, so you're just going to have to deal with it? No, that's unloving. So for one night, you know, even though your taste buds are telling you differently, you know that you're not going to starve from lack of protein by eating vegan for one night. So you invite them over, you have a vegan meal, and you do it not because you have to, or that you're somehow bound morally to do so, but out of love for them. Same thing, if you were to invite a Jewish person over, you may be free in Christ, right? One of my favorite stories in Acts is when God shows Peter all these animals he can eat. And while it's more significant than this, we always talk about how that's the moment Christians are free to eat bacon, right? But if you invite your Jewish neighbor over, over you're not going to cook up bacon or pork steaks for them, right? Because you love them. You are laying down your freedom in Christ to love another. Now, th those are kind of easy examples, but, but it gets a lot harder. Let me ask you this. What in your life would you be reluctant to lay down, even if it meant that you could love and share the gospel better with your neighbor? I'm not saying that you would refuse. I'm saying what if you were asked to, you go, I don't know about that. Do I need to do that? Do I really have to do that? What is that thing for you? Some of you, it might have actually been the barbecue and the steak thing. You're like, eat vegan for a night. I was just joking yesterday with my dad how vegan was a four-letter word in my household, right? So some of you, that might actually be a sacrifice. But, but what else? What else is, is it? For some of you, it is your politics. If people walk away from you and believe that they have to be a Republican or a Democrat to follow Jesus then you are holding up your politics as an idol. Are politics important? Yes. Are there things in politics that we can't compromise as Christians? Yes. 
but why are you leading with that? If people are walking away from you thinking that they have to change their political party to follow Jesus, then you are not laying down your freedom to love them well. For others of you, it might be your time. It might be your resources. What is that thing for you? What we learn from here is Paul is giving us an example. How do you make disciples? Well, you love them so much that you would even lay down your freedom so that you can remove obstacles from them receiving the gospel. And he learned this from Jesus. Jesus is God. God of the entire universe. And yet, despite having full authority, despite earning our worship and our respect and all the privileges of being God, he stepped into humanity suffered the indignities of being disbelieved and lied about and abused and even murdered. Why? Because he loved us so much that he was willing to die for our sins. Therefore, we can go without stake for one night, right? Like, it seems silly to compare, but that's the point. The reason we can love people like this is because when compared to how we've been loved, it, it doesn't even compare. We are so overwhelmingly loved, therefore we can love others. Go on there. What else does it mean about removing obstacles? So let's continue to read. Look at verse 10 with me. How, uh, what else can we learn about discipleship? It says this. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. There are... Um, me included sometimes, unfortunately, but there are many of us who view discipleship as primarily an intellectual exercise. We teach people what the Bible says and even apply it, right? Like, this is who God is in the Bible. Learn it. Believe it. In your head, know it, right? But the way discipleship is described in the Bible is more than just passing along information. It is actually passing along your very life. I want you to sit with that for a second. It is passing along your very life. When Paul um, appeals to the Thessalonians and how he discipled him, notice what he says. You know how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. How do they know? Because he was holy and righteous and blameless in his conduct towards them. In other words, when he was discipling them, he didn't just give them information. He showed them what it means to live that information out. Now, a lot of times in our culture, we make these false dichotomies between things. And so we're, we're very quick to, to go to one side or the other, to be like, discipleship is primarily an intellectual exercise, or discipleship is primarily like a, a, a way of life, right? And the truth is, you can't really separate we do the same thing in our worship of God. We're, we're like, okay, I want to know more about God, which is good. Uh, but for some reason, we, 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 we go, no, I want to experience God. And in our heads, what happens oftentimes between the experienced people is they say, oh, those intellectual people, they don't really know God experientially. They just know about God. And the, those who are intellectual are like, oh, these guys are just emotional, right? We separate these two things. Which, in, if we did it in real life, would seem kind of silly, right? Like, imagine for a second, those of you who are married, telling your wife or telling your husband, 
you know, I think I know all about you that I need to or want to know. I just want to have fun with you. Now, I am not a married man, um, so I know I have a lot to learn, but I'm pretty sure that's not going to go well for you, would it? We do, this, we do this with God sometimes, though. We have this idea that, like, oh, in order to experience God, I need to, like, I don't need the, all that intellectual stuff. Or the intellectual people think somehow you can know the infinite God of the universe, infinite in glory and power and beauty without experiencing him. And, and if you really think about it, that's just kind of silly, right? And so we look at this with discipleship, how do you disciple people? Do you give them information or do you show them through your life how to live? Right? Yes. <laughs> Stop trying to separate them. That's, that seems like you're making life so much harder for yourself. Why would you just show people by your example what you're doing, but then never tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it? That makes it harder. Or why do you speak and tell people what to do, but then your life tells them something very different? That's called being a hypocrite. It doesn't work. Right? When we look at discipleship, this is, and we look at the culture around us, this is, I think, this is me, not the Bible, by the way, but this is, I think, where our biggest problem is. If you look at what we have looked for in leaders in the church, we've looked for people who are great at teaching and speaking, they keep us entertained, they're charismatic, they have a way of explaining the Bible, which are not bad things. They are good things. But we forget what the Bible calls makes as qualifications for a pastor and an elder are all character qualifications. And so what has happened? We've had people who taught the Bible clearly with their words and denied it with their lives. And, and very expectedly, what happens? People turn away from their faith because they have been discipled by this pastor, but they've not been discipled in Christianity. They've been discipled in hypocrisy. And so it's no surprise that they abandon the faith. The same thing when it comes to the younger generations, right? You have parents, right, who are the primary disciplers of their children. What happens? Well, if you look at the statistics, do these parents live out their faith and teach their faith both? If so, now, it's not a one-to-one. -one. I know some people who have faithfully discipled their kids in their lives and in their words and their children because they're in the individuals, free human beings to make their own choices, have strayed. But when you have a whole generation in mass abandon the faith, what you have to ask is, have parents taught their children with their words, and have they taught them with their lives? And if you look at it, what you'll find is one of those two has failed. Right? That's why here uh, at our church, we always say, parents are the primary disciples of their children. Why? Because you're with them all the time. It is your job to disciple them. We want to assist you, but we can't take your place. That's also why, despite sending children to children's church, because we think it's good to have them have learning that's a little bit more geared towards where they're at intellectually, developmentally, once a month we have them in the church with us. Why? Because discipleship is not just teaching intellectually. It's how they see us live it out. So if they never see us worship, how are they going to learn to worship? I do know churches where they, not only their children, but their youth all the way up, keep worship as a, get, uh, as a gathered church just among the adults, right? Their youth go somewhere else, the children go somewhere else, the, the infants go somewhere else. It's just the adults, right? Well, what happens is that those children have never learned what it's like to worship God. 
So they're surprised. Why did they abandon their faith in college? They didn't, actually. They kept their faith. The problem was that it wasn't Christian this entire time. They never saw what it meant to follow Jesus. And this is what it looks like. If you want to know how do we pass on the faith to the next generation is by teaching them from the Bible and by teaching them in our lives what it means to live out the Bible. You can't have, you can't have, uh, you can't have it where you don't have one and still expect it to happen. That's not how it works. So Paul gave us very live to the Thessalonians. He worked hard. He removed every obstacle. He laid down his freedoms out of love, and then he showed them with his life how to live what he, with his mouth, was saying and teaching. Right? So those are the two things we can learn so far. Work hard to share the gospel. Remove obstacles with your life and with your words. Make disciples. What do we do next? So look with me at verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I want you to notice how he does it. Not just what Paul does, but how Paul makes disciples. Last week, Joe um, read the words how Paul compared himself as a mother to the children. And this week it's as a father, just a couple of verses apart. What is he trying to say here? He's not, what he's trying to say here is it wasn't just that he passed along information and lived the life out before him. He did it in a way that showed his great affection and gentleness and kindness to them. He cared for them as if they were his own kids. If you read Paul's letters, by the way, and even, even Peter's letters, you see this imagery where they, they, they induct younger Christians in. And even though Paul is a single man, never had his own biological children, he is a father to them. He cares for them. In other words, if you want to make disciples, it, you have to care for the ones you are discipling. They have to know that you care for them. They have to see you not just as someone lecturing them, just a word, not just as someone being strict with them, telling them how to live, someone who genuinely cares for them. And the reason that you're teaching and giving them an example is you want their best, right? This is what you do as a father and a mother to them. You care greatly for the ones you are discipling. Your tone matters. The way you communicate your love and your gentleness towards them matters, right? Do people, when you are teaching them, walk away going, man, that person loves me? Or do they walk away feeling kind of beaten up and bruised because you're just lecturing them and yelling at them, right? There's time, right, for father. There's time for father where you have to discipline your kid. No doubt about it, right? at least if you're, you're fathering well, you know, hopefully there's time where you have to discipline your kid, right? Because they're all fallen human beings. But here's the question. Do they walk away with you confronting sin, both with an appreciation for the seriousness of their sin, but also appreciation for the greatness of your love for them? Because if one of those is missing, then you're not discipling them correctly. They're missing something. Right? Because in order to do this like Jesus does, remember, we're imitating Paul who is imitating Jesus. Jesus communicates both. Your sin is serious 
so serious he had to die for it. There's no more serious thing for the Son of God to come and to die for your sins. It is serious. It is evil. It is only going to destroy you. But at the same time, his love for you is so great that he came and died for you. He lived for you too. He gave up his his freedoms and privileges as God to be worshipped in splendor of heaven and came down to earth where he suffered and died for your sins. That's the God we're imitating. Is the way you are discipling. Is the way that you are parenting. Is the way that you are leading. Does it imitate Christ in his great affection and gentleness towards you? Right? I'm not asking you to do something that you have not first received. That's a great thing as Christians. We never give anything that we haven't first received. So when we are called in the scripture to live and to respond gently and patiently, it's only because God has been so incredibly gentle and patient with us. You were never called to be more patient with anyone than God has been with you. Isn't that great news? Isn't that less great news when you realize how patient? <laughs> yeah, no, it's still good news, but it's a little harder when you realize how patient he's been with you over your lifetime, right? How stubborn and how reluctant to change you have been. God has been incredibly patient and kind. Therefore, we are free to be patient and kind as we, and this is where we get into the how, exhort, encourage, and charge. All those are, are getting at the same idea, but from a slightly different nuance. So let's look. Exhort. This idea of exhort is to come alongside them, to be with them as you push them to become more and more like Jesus, to disciple someone. You can't do so from a distance. You have to be close. You have to share your life. And as you're doing that, you are challenging them and encouraging them and teaching them. And by the way, they do the same to you, right? All human-to-human -human relationships have give and take. So as you were discipling, what happens if you've ever discipled somebody, you realize this already, you're being discipled by them too, right? There's nothing more humbling than to be teaching a baby Christian how to pray and you realize, like, your prayer life is more close to God right now than mine is, right? That is humbling but encouraging. So that's what exhort is, to come alongside, to challenged, encouraged. And then we get to encourage, right? To give someone strength. This is what we're called to do in the body of Christ, to come along each other. When things get hard, we're there giving them encouragement, pushing them to go better, being gentle with them. And then the idea of charge. Here this nuance is that it does not end with you. If you look at your bulletins, what you will see is our motto or theme, whatever you want to call it, for the church. It says, welcome, right? Welcome. We are glad you are here. Chillicothe Bible Church exists to, to what? To glorify God by making disciples of Jesus, who make disciples, who make disciples, dot, dot, dot. In other words, you are not done discipling someone until you've discipled them to make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. That's how Christianity came to us, by the way came from Jesus to his apostles and his disciples on to the next person, to the next person, through centuries and continents and ages and wars and peace and countries and languages until it got to you. And it's been faithfully passed on and passed on and passed on. When 
you are discipling someone, if they are following Jesus and God is growing them, you will come to a point, hopefully quickly, where you say, okay, it's your turn to do the same. Who's around you that you can share the gospel with? Who's around you that's new that you, to Christianity that you can encourage in their Bible reading and prayer and obedience? Right? Now, that is what it means. So what do we have so far? Well, what does it mean to make disciples like Paul who is imitating Jesus, right? Well, first, we lay down our freedoms, how to love for one another. We work hard to bring them to the gospel. That's one. Two, we give of our lives. So our words and our lives reflect how we obey the Bible and teach others to do the same with it, both words and actions. And two, like a father, right? We do so with gentleness, with peace, with patience, with kindness. How we do it matters. We exhort, encourage, and charge people, right? All of these things. But there's one more thing that I want to point out to you in this reading that we need to pay close attention to. So look with me at verse 12. It says this. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What is this saying here? What this is saying here is essentially like we called you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? In other words, gospel is God's good news to us that despite how much we've rebelled against God, despite making him our enemy, his love is so much that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became a human being who lived the perfect life we could never live, who died and rose again for our sake so that we might die to our old life and have a new life where we no longer live for ourselves but for Jesus. In other words, Paul disciples people in the gospel to the gospel about the gospel. As Christians, we never, we never outgrow this foundation for our faith. Whenever we do anything, it's because of what God has done for us. That's what I've been trying to say this whole time. You can be patient as you stifle others because we look at how patient God has been towards us. You can be gentle because look how gentle God has been towards you. You can love because look how much God has loved you. In other words, whenever you're encouraging people to walk in a way that honors God, you're always pointing them to the gospel. Otherwise, it becomes legalism. Don't just say, do this because it's the right thing to do, right? Well, you have no ability to do that unless God has given you that ability through what he's done for you first. So how do we live a life worthy of our God? The only way we can do that as Christians is because of what God has first done for us. So as you are making disciples, remember to consistently, again and again and again, point to the gospel. Point to what God has done. That's where you find encouragement and strength to live the life that is worthy of our God. Okay. So let's talk. So this is what the text says. Let's talk about practically. How do I do this? Because you may still be thinking, okay, it's great for you, Josh. You are a teacher. You're gifted in speaking and teaching and explaining in certain ways. But what about me? Like, I could never get up and talk in front of people. Like, how do I make disciples? And one of the encouragements I want to give you is you're probably already doing it. We think of discipleship in these very specific ways, which are true and good and necessary. But remember what discipleship is at its core. 
it is through your words and your life passing on your faith to another. So, sometimes in the church, we separate the discipleship ministry from the ministries that assist discipleship. And I think that separating those too much can cause problems. For instance, what if what you do in the church, if you're not gifted in speaking, if you're not gifted in like teaching from the text, how do you make disciples? What if all you do in the church is help clean, help pick up the trash, right? And you think, I just take out the trash. I just clean. Well, let me ask you this. Why are you doing that? Are you cleaning? How are you doing that? Are you cleaning and taking out the trash with joy? If you are, why? Who would take out the trash and clean with joy? Like, why are you doing that? Well, is your answer that you're doing it because you find joy in serving God because how he's changed your heart? Is that truly why you're doing it? If so, guess what you are doing? You are showing people how to live out what the Bible is teach. So what do you need to do to make disciples? You need to point people to Jesus when they look at what you're doing. When they say, why are you taking out the trash? Well, because I want to serve you guys out of my great love for Christ and what he's done for me. That right there is called making disciples, right? It's not as complicated as we make it sometimes. Can you imagine if those in our church, when we served, where we served, we served with joy, and as we served with joy, we pointed people to Jesus. How on earth can you serve so happily with all these crazy crying babies around you in the nursery? Well, it's because, like, to be honest, this is how I am before God, and he treats me with gentleness. So I want to show that same gentleness. That's making disciples, guys. We disciple each other. This is the work of the whole church. If you look at what Jesus commanded the church to do, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the job. The question is, how do I do it now? And it's by any means necessary. If that means taking out the trash, doing it with joy and pointing people to Jesus while you do it, that's making disciples. You disciple us. You disciple me. Like This is an area I am weak in. And so when I see people serving with joy and cheer because of what Jesus has done, that encourages me to do the same. Right? Each of you are gifted uniquely. Each of you are called to the work of discipleship in unique ways, but you are called to it. You are called to make disciples. So the question is, how can you turn what you are already doing into an opportunity to make disciples? And the answer, oftentimes, is just be intentional. Whatever you're doing, invite someone else to do it with you and point them to Jesus as you do it. Are you going and you are you helping mow your neighbor's lawn because they are getting older and they're having a hard time getting out and about? Invite one of the younger youths to do it with you and say, hey, the reason we do this is because God's great love for us leads me to love my neighbor even though I get nothing in return from it. And then you just mow the lawn and you do it well. And you joyfully, without complaining, that's what discipleship looks like. And then you imagine that on and on and on. And that completely transforms what this church can look like. And many of you are doing that, by the way. And uh, I say this to you more as a reminder than necessarily as a call towards repentance and change. Keep doing it, right? We need you and we love you and, and we have learned so much from you as you serve and as you disciple in this way. For you, if you are a parent, your call to discipleship is clear. You disciple your kids. We assist you as a church, but you are the discipler. How do you do that? 
that's hard part, right? This, that, that can seem very intimidating. And me, as a single person who has no children, is perfectly qualified to tell you, right? Well, thankfully, I can teach you what the Bible says, not Josh's tips on parenting, because those probably wouldn't be all that great. How do you do that? Well, one, you actually live out your faith. Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Good. Let your children see that. In fact, do that with them. Are you praying for your kids? Good. Let them know. Tell them. Be specific. I prayed for you today this. Pray with them before they go to bed, before they go to school, at meals. Read the Bible with them. You don't have to be an expert theologian. Just read it and say, this is what God has been teaching me from his word. This is how I'm living it out. Let them see your repentance too, by the way. You don't have to let them in on all the intimate details of everything you do in your life. Sometimes that's not always age appropriate. But when they see you sin, let them also see you repent, which is hard sometimes because sometimes the person you sin towards is your, your child, right? That can be hard. But this is how we disciple our children. What about if you don't have children at home? Do you have grandchildren? What if you don't have children at all? You're a single person. Well, you, you have friends and coworkers and brothers and sisters, and we need you in the church. Are we seeing you live out your faith, and are you pointing to Jesus as you do it? That's what it means to make disciples. And if we do this, then our church and our families and our community will be greatly impacted for it. So that's the call that I leave you today from the scripture. And I'm just going to close this in prayer as we close out our time in worship today. Father, I just thank you so much for the example you have given in Jesus and for all the he has done beyond an example. I thank you for all that your son has done as he came, he lived, he died, and rose again for us. I pray that you would convict us with your word, that you would lead us to repentance where we need to repent, that we find encouragement where we need encouragement and be strengthened by your spirit as we seek to make disciples wherever we are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.